0: Hello and welcome to the Other Minds Podcast. I'm Joseph Bohigian. Other Minds, founded in 1993 in San Francisco by Charles Amarkhanian and Jim Newman, is devoted to championing the most original voices in new and experimental music. On season two of the podcast, we're talking with the featured composers from our 27th Other Minds Festival, which will take place November 14th to 19th 2023 at the Taub Atrium Theater in Gray Area in San Francisco. Today I'm joined by Ivan Buna. Buna is a Norwegian composer living and working in Oslo, where he is professor of composition at the Norwegian Academy of Music. Apart from writing music for soloists, ensembles, and orchestras, Buna also frequently engages in collaborations with improvising musicians developing music in the cross-section between classical notation and improvisation. In addition to music, Buna writes critiques, essays, and novels, and is exploring hybrid forms between music and text and large-scale orchestral works. Welcome to the podcast, Ivan. Thank you. Nice to be here. What is your relationship with the music of the past? You've written... There's obviously a multitude of frictions in the relation between historical material and engagement in the now. And that this friction motivates your own artistic practice.
1: Yeah, it does in several ways. One way is that when you work with an institution like a symphony orchestra or that kind of, you work in that kind of space. There's so much energy there from the past, I feel. So as a composer, it's it's a little bit like exhibiting your work I mean, if you were a painter in a in a in a room full of old masters, you know, and working in the concert hall with the symphony orchestra, for instance, that would devote 95% of their time to old repertoire is this energy. So I feel when I when I enter that kind of space with my music, I need to engage with that. I need to work with that energy in some way. And I cannot wish it away. It's not I, I can't wish it was a white cube in a way. It has all these energies. So so that's that's one part of it. Um Another part of it, well, when I work with more kind of new music institutions, uh, let's say festivals or or a new music ensembles specialized on new music, I don't that often engage with, um, with the old. Sometimes I do if I want to, let's say, investigate what is chamber music, what is this room that we gather in without conductor and a kind of level playing field with musicians where anything can happen. But of course, in classical music, very often we know very well what's going to happen. So sometimes I use, I, I contact old music as a way to try to, uh, to, in a way, discuss that room, if you see what I mean. But there's also another thing about the past that I, I think, as composers, when we deal with the past, we transform the listening listening experience of the of the audience. But in a way, not only does the past shine into, into the present, but in a way, we also transform the past. I can give you one instance. One, one example is uh, Berio as a piece, Sinfonia, which is a big orchestral piece, kind of early postmodern work, where one of the movements, he takes a, a, a full scherzo from Mahler's Second Symphony and he writes his own stuff on top of that. And that Mahler scherzo just rolls on. And and now I can never hear that Mahler without also hearing Berio in my head, in a way. So uh, yeah, th- that's... Uh, some entrances to, well, working with the past in this way.
0: Could you talk about what you call a telescopic mode of listening?
1: Yeah, I think there's, sometimes we talk about the past and we talk about the present, like this kind of dichotomy or like there's two <laughs> two uh, points in time. But for instance, I have a project I call Schubert Lounge, where I sing Schubert songs in my very own way. I transform them. Uh, I sing with my untrained voice, more like a pop singer. I also grew up with popular music, not with classical music. So that's kind of my natural uh, uh, mother's tongue as a singer. And then I accompany myself with a Fender Rhodes electric piano. So this singer songwriter posture that I then developed there is a is kind of a image from the sixties and seventies. The Fender Rhodes was in a way the Steinway of the singer songwriter. So when I perform these Schubert songs, I mean, I do it in the now, in the present, uh, wherever I am doing it. And of course it also says something about Schubert's songs. But it's also nodding to this whole tradition of popular music from the 60s and 70s. And when we think about the songs of Schubert, we can think about a great tenor standing with a grand piano, with a big audience, really singing on the top of his voice, the way we've been used to from the 20th century way of performing classical music. But the original context of Schubert's work was often he would play himself. He was a singer-songwriter in a way to a small audience maybe in a a loft in Vienna or in a house of his friends. So I'm interested in history as this kind of, that's the telescopic idea that it has all these lenses that you can see through, which makes it much more interesting than just focusing on the present and some point in the past.
0: What is your method of transformation, if we can call it that, in the Schubert Lounge songs? For one, they're in English in your version. What else are you transforming? Initially I tried
1: to sing them in, in German but um then it for me didn't it didn't get in touch with pop music the way I, I wanted it to do because I mean English is the esperanto pop music uh, in a way all over the world that's the language that people use for that so uh the transformation process is is really about listening to the Schubert original songs with different singers and different recordings sometimes sitting by the piano, playing them myself. I'm not a very good pianist, but I do what I can. And, and then trying to catch some phrase or some kind of gesture that stays with me and that I that I can immediately transform with my own voice. So it's a very physical thing. I sit down and, and I start to sing it. And if it's a beautiful phrase and I can imagine, oh, um, I can work with this, but if I can't really sing it the way I want, then, then I can't do it. So... So it's very different from, I mean, my training as a composer and my 25 years of working professionally as a composer, it's where I work with other people's bodies. And I, as a composer, you kind of direct other people's actions on their instruments and, and the conductor's movements and all that. So you're kind of a, a working very intimately with other people's bodies, but from far away. So this was really about turning that process on myself and um developing this uh, and transforming these uh, songs through my own body. So it's more a physical thing than a a mental or intellectual thing for me. I sing them and and if I feel that I can, that it sits with me in in a good way, then yeah. And then of course, some of the songs I can sing almost uh, verbatim, the Schubert, but just rephrase it. But some of the songs, maybe there's some great Schubert phrases that I like, but then then maybe that song takes a different route and and I need to transform that. And maybe more than half of the material would be my own. And sometimes in extreme cases, maybe that's just a fragment of Schubert. So this way of working is a very different way than I would, let's say, for instance, with a symphony orchestra, where I don't engage bodily in the same way.
0: Yeah. And I mean, the Schubert Lounge project has expanded into different, perhaps more chamber music-y versions as well. Can you talk about that further level of transformation? Yeah, yeah,
1: absolutely. It's uh, Well, it started just as an experiment. I'm sitting now in my loft here in Oslo, where I work, and I wanted to uh, kind of recreate the original context of some of these songs. So I invited friends over here and said, I'll play you some Schubert my very own way. And then I made a vinyl with four tracks on it. So it was really just a, a side thing. But a lot of people really enjoyed it. And, and then a, a very good classical uh, baritone came to me and said, oh, I, I dig your stuff. Can we do something together? So then I started composing a work where I would compose more kind of new music stuff for him to sing. And he would also sing some original Schubert. And we brought a soprano into it. And I do my Schubert lounge. So so that's a full evening with a chamber ensemble. And also I have other musician friends that are excellent uh, performers, like Jakob Kurberg, Danish cellist. Great cellist, uh, but he also likes to sing. And then he heard my stuff and said, oh, can you write something for me where I can sing and play the cello? And so we ended up doing some stuff together and I wrote a set of songs for him based on Mauler. So yeah, it's it's kind of, um, I'm not the only person in the classical world that likes to sing just with the untrained voice.
2: the same bright river that gaily rushed along how still you are and silent no greeting in your song you no longer rushing your surface hot and sealed how cold you Unmoving, stretched across the field, I'll carve into your surface the name I can't forget, the name of my beloved. The day and now we met, the day of our first meeting. The day we had to part Her mind and time But round it all I'll carve a broken heart My heart Within this river
0: started to mention orchestral music. It's a genre which is, of course, laden with historical implications. Can you talk a bit more about how you're approaching these ideas with the orchestra?
1: Oh, yeah. That's, to me, a more abstract thing. For instance, I was to write a violin concerto for a violinist who performs a lot of new music, especially worked a lot with the the late Kaya Sariau. But still, I am, in a way... I couldn't imagine a violin concerto without Alban Berg's violin concerto kind of popping up in my head because also because it's it's a kind of proto piece as a very early example of postmodern music in, in the sense that he quotes the Bach Choral as is genug in that piece. So, so that's also a, a telescopic listening there. That when I listen to Berg, I also listen to Berg listening to to Bach. So for me, it was. It wasn't a way to get around. I, I needed to to kind of touch base with Berg in some way. And and towards the end, there are some quotes there. And it's difficult with this quote thing because I don't want it to be just a signal to the audience that's like say, hey, hey, we're in a big tradition here. And oh, you might like this and you've heard this before. So please listen to my music, you know. It's not about that, but it's more about when you write a violin concerto, it's, it's like a, it's it's a genre with so much yeah, like I said earlier, it's it's so heavily laden with connections already. The sound of the sound of it—it it, it comes with the world—and and, uh, so maybe I, I would just feel naive if I didn't kind of acknowledge that and work with that personally. That, that I mean, that's a for for me personally, I think. Yeah, and there's there's one more thing about but Alban Bag when I was writing the violin concerto because then five years prior to that, I'd published my first novel. And in that novel, one of the main characters is a violinist preparing to play the Berg Violin Concerto. So I really thought a lot about how to fictionalize kind of a a performance of of Berg Violin Concerto. A novel is also a great way, great place to to think about and and to kind of discuss and to criticize uh, the world of classical music and, and to celebrate it, because you can make up fictional characters that do all kinds of things. So when it was time for me to write my violin concerto. I had already done this kind of legwork with with Berg, which is I think also
0: a reason why it became impossible to not take that into to the work. You mentioned that you're also a novelist, in addition to being a composer. And you've described searching for hybrid forms in which text and music are equally important and dependent on one another. Can you talk about this idea in relation to your piece Blue Mountain. Yeah, Blue Mountain is is the first
1: piece where I wrote a kind of uh, live audio play in a way. It's it's for two actors and orchestra, and the actors they're sitting on like audience chairs, but on stage like the soloist plays. So the audience would soon understand that they're kind of they're part of the audience, and we start listening to their conversation. And then they talk about a relation and they talk about the music that they're here and they talk about the past. And and that's, of course, then you can make a situation with, when they are listening to the orchestra, which is playing right behind them and, and, and discuss what they're playing. And then you can throw all of these old pieces into that mix. But there was especially one piece that was important for me. And that was uh, the Mahler song, Ich bin in Welt abhanden gekommen. Because the text there is is very, the poet there, Rick talks about i have left the world the world is now behind me i i'm uh, alone in my heaven in my art so it's a kind of strange this is this a kind of guy who kind of escaped into art or is it a suicide note or what what is this poem and to me that maudi song is that's the most beautiful song in the world yeah so 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 the conversation that the two actors have kind of i the story behind it in a way is inspired by that uh, Rückert text that Mahler uses, and of course, then the Mahler fragments start showing up in the music. So, in a way, that Mahler song inspired both the textual writing but also the musical writing. Yeah, but textually, it's it's not clear. It's it's on a rather profound level, but it's it's when you know it, it's 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 really
0: there. Do you feel like you were successful in elevating the elements of text and music to the same level, or what did you learn from that process?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a constant work that I'm in the process of it right now because in six weeks uh, we have a, a premiere of a new work in the same genre with a, with another orchestra and two different actors where I could try again and fail again and fail better perhaps no but what I learned is some really banal things that for instance there were a part where I wanted the actors to keep talking I've written a long dialogue but the orchestra was supposed to overpower them and to so the audience wouldn't hear the words they were just you know maybe some fragments. But the actors were really, really skeptical to that. They were like, "If we are sitting on a stage and talking, people must hear us." I said, "Yeah, well, trust the music. The music will tell the story." And they were just, "No, no, no." So, so I I had to let that idea go. And another, <laughs> I mean, banal insight is how much power there is in a symphony orchestra when you sit there up with them, just in front of the first violins. Uh, because what I am aiming for in terms of dramatic dialogue, I want something very naturalistic more akin to a, a film dialogue. So they they use closed mics and we position loudspeakers down the hall so that they wouldn't have to really project their voices like theater acting. But still, when the orchestra starts to play loud, they believe that they need to project their voices to, to the last stage, the seat of the, of the audience. So these are technical things. But what I also learned, I think, wanting to elevate music and text to the same level is at certain points you need to, like I said, trust the music to tell the story and not everything needs to be spelled out. And also the biggest threat is that music just starts floating into the background. So in the text I put in kind of textual pointers where the actors would say, listen, listen to this. You remember this piece? You remember we were at that, yeah. And also, so they also say that in a way to the audience implicitly, listen, listen to this. So I try to weave that into the dialogue in a natural way. I'm not sure if I will always succeed. Yeah, so those are a few insights, but this is for me, it's it's a, it's a developing work. I hope I can do, I would really like to do a piece with, with choir and actors, kind of smuggle actors into the choir and 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 then the choir starts becoming a kind of a stage. So um, yeah, it's something I would really continue to work on.
2: Vad spiller de?
0: Jeg vet ikke. Aldrig hørt det før.
2: Har er du kjent med den? Nej, Bare glem det.
0: Så fint at du svarte. Det hadde jeg ikke ventet. Du ser godt ut da. Har jo ikke blitt et år äldre.
2: Nej. Jeg har ikke den. Finns det att vi kunde mötas här? Ja. Nej, jag har inte liknat på konserter, men ja, det vet du. Ja. Jag syns vi hörer varandra på en annan annan måte. Mm.
0: Tiden blir liksom borte
2: Jag syns du det? Ja. För mig är er det kommet. Jag syns tiden blir helt konkret. Den kommer och så går den och den kommer aldrig tillbaka.
0: är er på konserter da, da mister jag tidsförnelsen helt Jag drömmer mig bort och föreställer mig ting.
2: Här. Det
0: Shifting over to the upcoming performance at the Other Minds Festival, the Friction Quartet will be performing your 2006 string quartet grid. Could you tell us about that piece?
1: Yeah, it's part of a big chamber music cycle called Possible Cities Essential Landscapes. And at that time, every piece I wrote I can tell you which novel or which book I was reading at the time because they, they kind of seep directly into my music. And for this chamber music cycle, it was Italo Calvino's Invisible Cities, which is a fictional uh, meeting between Kublai Khan and Marco Polo, where they have a lot of philosophical discussions. And at this time in 2006, I was very, um, I would say, obsessed with the gestural qualities of music, of music as a, as a physical event, both in terms of how the musicians relate to their instruments but also this kind of I like this jerky um, energetic quality that would almost try to make the audience move in their chairs like bumping into them with, with the music so so there's a lot of fast energy in that music and rhythms and gestures that, that kind of uh, bounce around a lot and it's called grid because in this cycle the first half of the cycle is, is really about cities and kind of uh, city noise city life and all the superposed grids in a city. I mean, we have the grids of the street, you have grids of, of water and drainage, and you have the grids of electricity and all these overlaid grids. And and of course, of, of human intercommunication. Um, so to me, the city is just it's this web of connections. And that was really something that that I tried to, there was energy there. I tried to get into the music. And then later in the cycle, it's the pieces transform more to more quiet where the landscape becomes more important as as a as an image for me no but i think the most important thing is that it's it's a very typical piece of mine from that time because of all this gestural energy
0: And you've also written a new piece, which Friction will be premiering. has your, either your composition in general, or even just your string writing changed over those past 17 years since you wrote grid? Oh, I think, I think a lot. I think when I wrote grid, it was about
1: imagining some kind of gestural energy and then trying to get the players to in a way act that or enact or act that out. But in my present writing, especially for strings, it's much more, more about the latent quality of the instruments themselves, the fragility, the touch of the finger on the string, uh, the bowing positions. And a quartet is really a, a beautiful and and very I mean, it can be so fragile and so brittle. At the same time, a good string quartet, maybe they've played together for for 10 years, 20 years, something like that. And then they're, I mean, it's 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 like a super honed instrument for music or and so it's this duality by by this, the virtuosity of, of, of the string players but also trying to catch this this fragility and then to get that i try to go really deep into into the instruments themselves and let the music grow out of that instead of kind of putting my grid as it were on the music yeah and this piece it's also it's a very quiet piece and I wrote it as I was approaching my fiftieth birthday, so actually the first uh, the first final draft was finished on my birthday, my fiftieth birthday, and that's a time where, uh, for me, living here in a rather quiet corner of the world in Scandinavia and um, feeling very privileged and uh, in, in many ways, uh, so it's a good time to take stock of that. It's also a time to to look back on on things, and one of the things I looked back on too was was this. Like in the in this uh, music cycle, chamber music cycle that I was talking about, there's uh, a lot of energy, but there's these pockets of, of quietude. And then I would look back to these pockets of, of quietude and and put those center stage and really look into those and and develop those and, and and go into those in a way that I haven't done before. So it's it's maybe something that has been latent in my music that now, in this piece, chorals, it's a series of of rather simple harmonic structures. That in some ways are always slanted or put askew or there is some kind of collision and friction in it. Because even though I like the quietude and want to explore this stretched out time spaces, for me it must always be some friction there. There must be, <laughs> no pun intended, but by the name of the quartet. But uh, no, but truly, that the, the, even in the most, uh, I mean, harmonious and beautiful passages, there must be friction. There must be some kind of uh, counter weight. I, I can read something from, from Italo Calvino. His I have his book here because this, um, yeah, that's one thing I was thinking about. This is from a section where, yeah, Kublai is speaking. Contemplating these essential landscapes, Kublai reflected on the invisible order that sustains cities, on the rules that decreed how they rise, take shape, and prosper, adapting themselves to the re- seasons, And then how they sadden and fall in ruins. At times, he thought he was on the verge of discovering a coherent, harmonious system underlying the infinite deformities and discords. And this kind of being on the verge of understanding a harmonious system that that underlies something else or that is in kind of conflict with itself or something like that. I think that's something I often strive for which is a difficult balancing act because if the harmonious system becomes too obvious, then there's no mystery in it, then the friction disappears. So in this piece, I'm I'm maybe searching for those uh, areas where the audience will feel, yeah, that there is a harmonious system that I can kind of touch and feel, but I can't totally grasp it. I, I can just kind of stretch my ears towards it. That's what I'm aiming for. Of course, now, since these are these are just notes on paper, we don't know if I managed to do that, but we will find out.
0: Great. I think that's a great place to end. You can hear the world premiere of Ivan Buna's Corrals and his String Quartet Grid performed by Friction Quartet at Other Minds Festival 27 on November 18th, 2023 at the Taub Atrium Theater in San Francisco. Thank you, Ivan, for joining me. Thank you for having me. This has been an episode of the Other Minds podcast, brought to you by Other Minds. Our 27th festival is November 14th to 19th, 2023 at the Taub Atrium Theater and Gray Area in San Francisco. Join us again next week.